lesson for this second Sunday in Advent comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Listen now for God's word to you. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him, and all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. When he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me, and I am not worthy to carry his sandals." He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. On August 1st, 2020, Sarah K. Evans Plaza opened in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina. Who was Sarah K. Evans? Well, in 1952, Sarah Evans, or as she was known at the time, Private Evans, was on her way back from her first assignment with the Women's Army Corps, riding on the bus, when she was asked by a white passenger to move to the back of the bus. Evans refused, and she was subsequently uh, handcuffed, arrested, and detained for 13 hours. She sued the Interstate Commerce Commission, and she won in court in 1955, but it took six years for that judicial victory to be enforced. Meanwhile, in, in 1955, another young black teenager named Claudette Colvin was riding on the bus, and um, she was inspired by the life of Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman and their actions, and inspired to resist injustice wherever she experienced it, including on the city bus. She, too, was asked to move to the back of the bus, and she also refused, and she was arrested and detained. So before we have Rosa Parks, this great icon of the civil rights movement, we have Sarah K. Evans and Claudette Colvin. That before we have this momentous moment in American history, the Montgomery bus boycott, we have these two young women who paved the way for Rosa Parks, who paved the way for Rosa Parks and for Martin Luther King and other figures. That their names scarcely register on our, in our memory. We very, barely ever hear of them. How many of you have heard of Sarah K. Evans and Claudette Colvin? Just a couple of you. I hadn't heard about them until I looked it up. It seems that every movement needs forerunners, people who go before them, someone who prepares the way. And and forerunners, we, we don't know a whole lot of details about their lives, that they're kind of undervalued and underappreciated, but they're the ones who sort of till up the soil. They're the ones who prepare the way for the one who is coming. They themselves 
are not the one, but they prepare the way for the one. They destabilize the terrain. They prepare us for something that is outside the norm of our normal everyday expectations. Sarah K. Evans, Claudette Colvin, they were forerunners for Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott. And of course, John the Baptizer was the forerunner for Jesus. And I call him John the Baptizer, not John the Baptist, because he wasn't a Baptist. Um, <laughs> although if you were listening to his message, he sounds a little bit like a Baptist, doesn't he? Um, John, in typical forerunner fashion, he's kind of there one moment and he's gone the next. He's kind of this flash-in-the-pan sort of character that most of what we know about John comes to us from Luke's gospel, that Luke gives us a lot of background details on who John is, uh, more than anybody else. He tells us about his parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Um, they are part of the religious establishment in Jerusalem, that Zechariah is a priest in the temple. And so it's good to note that in those days, the temple was not just simply a religious institution. It was the place where the power brokers of that society hung out. It was also at times an investment bank, like massive amounts of money through the, flowed through the temple. And some places of worship still seem that way, right? Um, I don't know if you all have seen the video, the viral video that went out um, of the, the drummers coming down from, the, like in this mega church coming down from the ceiling on suspended on some wires. No? You should go check it out. It's... <laughs> Um, a lot of money was spent on making that happen. So, you know, the temple is, this, is not just a place of worship and sacrifice. It's also um, a place where powerful people hang out. These are like, the, te- the priests in the temple are sort of like aristocrats in that society. Um, and Zechariah, according to Luke, is a faithful and righteous person. He has been faithfully trying to serve God. But despite his faithfulness, despite um, his status in society, he has one really big unanswered prayer in his life, um, that he and his wife Elizabeth have never had children. Um, And that's not for lack of trying, it's not that they didn't want children, but they're just one of those couples that even, that we still see today, that that have a, a fertility crisis, have a hard time getting pregnant. And by the time we meet Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're they're elderly and Elizabeth is well beyond childbearing years, and so seemingly that unanswered prayer is going to remain unanswered. But of course, what's so interesting about Advent is that we get these stories where God does the unexpected and God does the impossible. And so Zechariah one day is undergoing his priestly duties in the temple, and that's when an angel appears to him and says that you, that Elizabeth is going to be miraculously pregnant. You're going to name your son John. He is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. Um, interestingly enough, Elizabeth is cousins with Mary, uh, mother of Jesus. And so you have these two women in the same family who have these miraculous conception stories. So I wonder what family reunions were like with those two women around. Um, but John takes a very different path with his life uh, than his, and his parents do. He doesn't stay in Jerusalem. He doesn't stay where the powerful and all the clamor and the noise of Jerusalem. He, he heads out into the Judean wilderness to the banks of the Jordan River where he begins a ministry of baptism and preaching. And, uh, and it says that he, he wears camel's hair clothing and subsists on a diet of locusts and wild honey. Um, John, to me, is sort of a, a bizarre character. Um, he shows up a lot in the season of Advent. He's kind of like one of the relative that shows up that everyone thinks is weird, right? Every, every family has one. And the joke, I think the joke is that if you don't have one, then it's you. Um, 
But John is sort of this bizarre character. But what's bizarre about him to me is not necessarily his clothing or his, his food choices, but it's his message. Did you catch it? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. You know, John lacks very little Christmas spirit. He has, he has very little Christmas spirit. He, he puts all the bah humbugging of Ebenezer Scrooge to shame, right? You brood of vipers, he said, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Bear fruit that is worthy of repentance. Put that as a little note on your Christmas card to send it out to family, friends, and loved ones. You brood of vipers. I, I think he could have used a visit from the, the ghost of Christmas's past, present, and future. could have put him into the, the right mood the right Christmas spirits. That message of repentance seems a little bizarre and a little out of place. Not that the message itself is bizarre and out of place, but it seems out of place in this season, in the season of Advent as we're preparing ourselves for the birth of Jesus. It seems a little strange to me. Who wants to talk about repentance in a time of year like this? Shouldn't we save all of that talk for the season of Lent when we're all trying to be sad and remorseful and all that sort of thing? But I think one of the reasons why repentance seems so out of place in a season like this is the ways that we typically think about repentance. That we typically think about repentance simply as this experience of being sorry, of saying sorry for the sins and the wrongs that we've done. Um, I know that this 9 o'clock service attracts all of the former Catholics, right? Um, The joke in our visioning summit was... uh, the Catholic Church is going to ask where all the Catholics have gone. They've come to the Greenfield 9 o'clock service. Um, And so I know for a lot of you in your former lives, that experience of repentance is one of going to confession and being told to say Hail Marys or the Our Father or that sort of thing. I know for me, repentance, growing up in an evangelical environment, repentance was all about uh, saying the sinner's prayer and asking Jesus into your hearts. I think for a lot of us, repentance might conjure up those feelings of guilt and shame, feeling bad about all the things that uh, we've done. And to be sure, repentance is about confessing and acknowledging the wrongs that we've done. There's a reason why, well, not at this service, but at the 11 o'clock service, we confess our sins every week. You don't confess your sins here every week. Maybe we should change that. Um, anyway, <laughs> I, you know, it was a Freudian slip. Um, <laughs> There's a reason why we confess our sins together every week, because we acknowledge that we have done wrong, that we have not always gotten things right. It's not just the things that we've done that are, uh, that are in need of confession. It's also the good that we have failed to do. We need to acknowledge and own up to and, and take ownership of the things that we've done wrong. But if all we think about when it comes to repentance is saying sorry or feeling remorseful or sad for the things we've done wrong, I think we need to, to widen our view of what repentance is all about. Because what repentance literally means is it means to go in a new direction. It says that we're headed, in, in some places in our lives, we are headed in the wrong direction, and we need to go in a new one. And so that sorry, that confessing, that acknowledging, is just that process of saying, oh, the my, my directions are wrong. I need to stop and, and reroute and change course. One of the things that's been really helpful to me in rethinking what repentance is all about is something I've come across recently. Um, it's the Jewish concept of teshuva. Um, it's the word that it's used in Hebrew for repentance. Uh, but what it re- literally means is to return. And I came across this word, uh, or this concept, in a book by a rabbi named Danya Ruttenberg. It's a book called Unrepentance and Repair. 
Um, and teshuva is practiced a lot during the high holy days of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, but, but really it's a practice that is meant to be undertaken at all times. Um, teshuva, to return. And to be sure, teshuva includes those practices of acknowledging, of confessing the sins and the wrongs that we've done, that we all harm each other. We all have been harmed in ways that are big and small and personal and communal and societal ways. It's about acknowledging those things. But I think where teshuva starts to take a contrast with me with normal Christian associations with repentance is that it's not about making us feel guilty or shameful for the things that we've done wrong. We might feel bad about the things we've done wrong, but that's not the point. The point of teshuva is exactly what the name means. It is to return. That we all, in some places, in some areas of our lives, have been headed down the wrong path. That we have hurt, we have harmed others. Others have hurt and harmed us. We participate in systems of injustice and oppression. We, we need teshuva. We need to repent and to return. And one of the places of returning is to return to the self. To return to what one rabbi calls the divine self, the love self, the, the us that God created us to be, the unique self, the best version of who we are, that we need to return. That's what teshuva is all about. It's about this returning back to that love self. And what one rabbi says is that in returning to ourselves, we are actually returning back to God. That we are returning back to the place where God dwells within each and every one of us. And so repentance, I think, offers all of us an opportunity to consider what pathways are we on in our lives? Are we on pathways of love and welcome? Are we on pathways of apathy and indifference? Are we on pathways of hatred? Or what pathways, what direction are we going in our lives? Where do we need to return back to who we are called to be, who God has created us to be, to the self, the divine self, the love self? the best version of who we are. And what's interesting to me is reading one of the rabbis, he says that, that even the most perfectly righteous person needs teshuva. And the reason, in my mind, is it's not just the sins and the wrongdoings that we commit that unmoor us and disconnect us from the true self. It's also the hurts and the wounds and the injuries that others have caused to us that someone said something to us a long time ago and we have, we have kept it and we've lived from that place, that, that someone told a story about who we are and it wasn't true, but we've lived as if it was true. That some of us, I think, repentance means repenting of the guilt and the shame that we live with, the ways that we have lived our lives disconnected from who we actually and truly are. So repentance Returning, I think, is an opportunity for us to take the exit ramp off of those highways of hate and indifference and apathy and instead to get onto the highways of love and justice and peace. And it's an opportunity for us to disconnect ourselves from those false stories that someone told about us that we've been telling about ourselves for years and to reconnect once again with that divine self, that loved self, the self that God made each and every one of us to be. It is a chance to, to disconnect from guilt and shame. And this is what John says to us. Repent, he says, 
repent, return, turn around and go in another direction. Go away from those places of, of harm towards other people. Go away from those places where you have been harmed yourself and return back to that place of love, that true and divine self. Repent, he says, for the kingdom of God is near. The one who is coming in God's name is close at hand. And in my experience, there is no better time for repentance, for returning to who you truly are, than in that time of preparing for a child. I remember when Heather and I were getting ready for my son Axel to be born, the child who's going to make us parents. We did all of those normal things that parents do, right? Uh, we, you know, we got the crib together, and Heather yelled at me for not following the instructions, and um, we picked out our favorite, our, our favorite books to put on the bookshelf for him. We read all the parenting books. We, we did all those normal things, getting ourselves ready for him to be born. But I noticed, that I, as I think back to that time, I remember there's a lot of a, a lot of opportunities for reflection and for thinking about what sort of parent was I going to be? What sort of dad was I going to be? I was going to be a dad for the first time in my life, and what sort of things did I want to, to model for Axel? And as I processed that, I realized that there were areas in my life, there were things in my life that I did not want to be modeled for my son. You know, for me, one of the big things is my tendency towards perfectionism, that I don't make mistakes well. Not that I don't make mistakes. Ask my wife and children. I make plenty of mistakes. But when I make mistakes, they crush me. I, it ruins my day, all of this sort of thing. And so is that the sort of lesson I wanted my son Axel to see? Did I want him to think that mistakes should crush us and leave us feeling shameful about who we are? Or did I want him to see that even when we do things that are wrong, there is grace, there's an opportunity to correct and an opportunity to do better the next time. There's no better opportunity, I think, than the expectation of a child to consider who we are. Are we connected to that best version of ourselves? There's a pastor I worked with in seminary who's one of the most influential people in my life. Um, he, he would say it every, every year at Christmas time, he would say this, and I think about it every time we come to Advent. He would say that God came into the world as a baby because we want to make a better world for babies. That God came into the world as a baby because we want to make a better world for babies. And I think that he's right. I think that we want to be the best versions of who we are for our children, for our nieces, our nephews, that even if you're not a parent yourself, you still want to make a better world for younger people. It's true. Time to wake up. Um, <laughs> I'm thrown off by that. <laughs> um, we want to make a better world for babies. And even if you don't have parents, kids yourself, like the, the pastor who said this, he was, he's not a parent. He, never, he doesn't want to be a parent. Yet he acknowledges that we want to make a better version of our. We want to be the best version of ourselves. We want to make a better world for our children. And if John is out in the wilderness, that camel hair wearing, bug eating prophet, calling us to repent, calling us to be the best versions of ourselves, that I think he becomes a necessarily bizarre character of the Advent season. That he asks us to consider who are we as people? Who are we as individuals? Who are we as a society? Where do we need to repent and go in a new direction to return back to who we actually and truly are?
And so we've been asking the question in this Advent season, what do we want for Christmas? And as strange as it sounds, all I want for Christmas is repentance. Not the sad, mopey, shame and guilt-filled kind, but the one that's all about returning back to who we actually are. All I want for Christmas is repentance, an opportunity for all of us to get off of those highways of guilt and shame that maybe have been, we've been struggling with for a long time, that all I want for Christmas is repentance, to return back to who we truly are, for society to be a better place, loving and just and peaceable, that all I want for Christmas is for all of us to know our connection with that divine and loved self. Repent, John says. The kingdom of God is near. The child who comes in God's name is close at hand. Prepare your hearts, prepare your lives for his arrival. Thanks be to God. Amen.